Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. But if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. So we're here today to talk about the latest season of The Handmaid's Tale and the amazing sound effects work that were done on it. So here with me today is Jane Tattersall, who is a partner and senior vice president of Post Toronto at Sim who also holds the title of Supervising Sound Editor on Handmaid's Tale and has worked on jobs from Schitt's Creek, Vikings, The Nature of Things, and many, many more. I usually rhyme off people's accolades and some of the awards they've won, but a funny story about Jane is if you go into the Toronto office that she started and you walk in, you first get into this stairwell where you can go upstairs, you can go downstairs, and there's a few different floors, but the trophy cases are not big enough to hold all of the awards that she has won. There's literally three floors of awards covering all the walls down that staircase. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but we've also got Brennan Mercer with us, who is a sound editor at Sim with us as well. And Brennan's worked on jobs like Vikings, Kim's Convenience, Hip Hop Evolution, Trickster, and of course, Handmaid's Tale. So without further ado, welcome to the show, both Jane and Brennan. Hello. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So we have a fair number of people that tune into the show that are into film and television, but don't necessarily work in our field. And then there's also plenty of people that are very experienced, work in post or work in production, or like me, who work in this industry, but don't really touch sound. So maybe a good place to start would be just introducing what are sound effects? You know, there's a lot of different types of sound work that happen from composing to dialogue assembly, ADR cueing, Foley and sound effects, BG editorial. There's a lot of different sound things going on. So when we say that you work in sound effects, what is that exactly? In terms of the soundtrack, when we are at the final phase and we're in the actual theater mixing, the mix board is traditionally broken into the A side and the B side. And the A side is all of the speaking, so the dialogue and the ADR and other things like loop group, as well as music. So you have all the speaking, which is recorded either on set during production or after the fact, and any of the composed music. And then on the B side, you have sound effects. And sound effects can be broken down further into two main categories. Um, there is Foley, which is further subdivided into footfalls, so walking, props, which are the handling of objects, and cloth, which is literally the movement of cloth of whatever characters on screen. And then anything else is sound effects. And sound effects can be broken into ambiences and specifics, or what's also called um, hard effects or sync effects. So ambiences would be anything that's environmental. So in the actual environment, 
that you're watching. And specific effects are, would be anything that has an on-screen kind of sync point or movement that you can actually track. These can kind of overlap and you can have similar sounds, but a way to think about it, I guess, would be like cars. So background traffic that you don't see, but you kind of hear the humming din or roar of would be ambiences. And then a car that physically passes by on screen from left to right, that has a kind of sync point that you can attribute the sound to. So you can make that car pass in sync, moving left to right. And the same thing would go for birds or, you know, anything like that where birds could be environmental or they could be on screen. If you're in Viking world and there's swords clashing, that's specific effects. If you're listening to wind blowing through the trees, that's environmental effects. I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so between you two, you know, you each have slightly different titles. So Jane, if I was correct there, you're a supervising sound editor, whereas Brennan is the sound editor. So what does that mean, I guess, in relation to those specific types of sound work that Brennan just got into? Well, the, the supervising sound editor is responsible for all of the sound, or in, in our case, all of the sound effects and sound design and backgrounds. But that's not always the case in, in every project. Brendan and I have worked together for a long time, so we have kind of a shorthand of how we generally divide up the sound. But often the supervising sound editor is the person that the producer talks to or the director talks to initially. So they might reach out to me initially to say, mm -hmm. like, we'd be interested in you doing the sound on this project. And then I would then assemble a team. So I would say, well, like, I really would like to work with Brennan Mercer on this. And then they would look up Brennan, they'd look up, look him up on IMDb and see, of course, yes, he's got tons of credits and we have a lot of history of working together. So he would pass muster. But often it's just a case of, of a contact person rather than uh, overseeing all of the sound. And then how we work together? Well, um, generally we would start, I mean, Handmaid's Tale is is, mm -hmm. is very particular the way the way it works and because we're in our fourth season now we're just finished our fourth season so we have a way of working but if we were to embark on a new project together we would just discuss about who wants to do what or Brennan would, would like defer to me and say well Jane what would you like to do and then I'll just suggest I'm not sure 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 what would you like to do Brennan <laughs> they'll then pick out the things that he likes and and because we worked together for such a long time I know the things that he's really fantastic at and really enjoys doing and he knows I particularly like environmental sounds so he'll say why don't you do all the environmental sounds on something hmm. so that, that's generally what it has become that's interesting okay yeah I mean with this show in particular as well I feel like the sound drives so much emotion into the story compared to most shows out there it's really intense so maybe we can talk about that those environmental sounds and, and how they are really driving a lot of that emotional impact and, and how much of that is being driven by someone else telling you what to do or preconceived ideas as to how it should be done versus creativity in the moment, in the session, but maybe it's best to walk through this sequentially. So when I think about the picture side of things, editorial is getting dailies every day. Final colorists get a lookbook as a guide or maybe pre-grading sessions with the DP before production starts, but what happens for you? So obviously this show is many seasons in, but you've been on it since the beginning, right, Jane? So I'm just curious, 
how did you get in tune with what to expect from the show and how to prepare? Because there's obviously a theme to this show. How did you figure out what that was? From the very beginning, we were told that sound was really important. And it was evidently very important right from the very start. The first three episodes were directed by Reed Morano. And we had a spotting session for the first episode, which lasted almost a full day. And not only was Reed part of that session, like going through the spotting session is where we sit down and we watch the project through, whether it's a film, we would watch the whole film. In this case, we, were, we watched the episode, of, the first episode of The Handmaid's Tale. And scene by scene, we went through and talked about the sound. And Reed had such very specific ideas about what she wanted to hear, what um, mood she wanted to create, and what role the sound should play. And not only that, but she said over and over and over again, like, you guys just like do what seems right. We want you to be really creative and really out there and really innovative or, or adventurous. With, be very bold with the sound, she said. And we also had a present. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Bruce Miller, who is the showrunner, the writer and showrunner. And we had Warren Littlefield, who was one of the creative producers. Warren Littlefield is a legend in his own time. And we had Sheila Hawken, and we've worked with Sheila Hawken on many, many television shows. And she's an outstanding creative producer and very, very interested in sound. So we had four people Mm -hmm. for almost the whole day talking about sound. It was something I've never been through before. I don't think Brennan's been through that either. It just felt like these people are paying attention to every single sound that we're making. So we are just going to... Like, we're going to do our job as to the best of our ability, knowing that everything we do is going to be heard. They might not agree with what we've put in, but they're going to hmm. consider it and listen to it, and they're going to know that we've intelligently placed a sound because it seems right for the story or for the character or for the scene. And with that spotting session, considering, like, they had already cut the entire episode, and that was the first time you really sat down, you checked it out, had editorial put in their own temp sound effects in any way, or was it just the dialogue recorded from set? No, all, all the all picture editors nowadays or picture assistants nowadays, they put in quite an elaborate soundtrack of sound effects and ambiences, and they put even temp music in sometimes. So you no, know, we had a we had a very good model to start with, and. You know, there's there's a lot of discussions that happens now between sound editors and picture editors because sound editors, I might not be speaking for all sound editors, but we kind of want to have our role in being creative with the choices of sound we make. And often the picture editors have put in sounds and they love those sounds. So what happens is something that is called temp love, which is they love that dog bark or they love that <laughs> door squeak. And whatever whatever other sound you can dream up is just not quite the same as what they had before. I imagine music must be very similar for that too, right? Oh, it's a mm-hmm. nightmare for composers. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Which is why it's, it's in many cases, it's nice to have your composer or your sound effects editor involved early on. And Brennan can speak to that. He's worked on many shows where he's actually involved while they're picture editing so that he's providing sounds. In fact, on Handmaid's Tale, we sometimes provide sounds ahead of time 
which then means that that temp love we can you don't have to worry about it as much yeah it can be temp love for your work yeah <laughs> hmm, gotcha and so you had the spotting session you watched episode one you talked about it for people in the room which is awesome obviously you can tell because the sound has such I don't know I don't know what you'd call it uh, such an elaborate sound bed you can definitely tell a lot of attention was put on it but after that spotting session you talked about it are you then left to your own devices to go back and be left alone and really start getting into crafting and creating some of those sounds or do they expect that during that spotting session you're you're prepared to play certain things back and they can give you feedback I guess in the case of Handmaid's Tale we usually left on our own although there are probably Hmm. some times Brennan you might remember when they wanted us to do sounds in advance and send them off for them to listen to but for the most part I seem to think that with the model that the picture editor has put in we follow that you know the the mood of that and we follow the kind of arc of that we do our work and then we do the mix and then we play the mix back for the producers what do you think Brennan? I think it's it's pretty amazing the amount of creative liberty we're given. It's something that I really cherish and like I really I do appreciate. As Jane's saying, like we do follow the basis or the skeleton of what they've laid down and the emotion and and the kind of intent. And especially with those first episodes, like Reed had put in these very specific temporary sounds that she said we want I want there to be something like this and I want this to be a palette of sounds that you can continue to use for the rest of the season Hmm. and quite frankly we've used it entirely in the last four seasons like there's there's a very core set of sounds especially when it comes to slow motion or surrealness where we're using a palette of sounds that were established in the first two episodes and were kind of approved and were then loved and reused as their temp sounds. Like Jane was saying, those became this kind of basis of, of their temp sounds, which we f- would further elaborate on, but that was really great because you, you're, like you're saying, you're joking about their temp love is of your work, which is amazing. And something we've really tried to be proactive with in this series is giving the picture editors, as the seasons progress, libraries of design or of environments or of foley so that they can use certain sounds that we've made just for the show and you know those are kind of bespoke sounds that haven't been used anywhere else and they're able to use them as their temp sounds and then when we get the AAF so the way the picture department delivers the audio back to us we kind of open this AF file open and we can see all this exact sounds they've used and we can see where they've used our sounds and, and why they've used them. And that's kind of a really beautiful thing too, because it's this collaborative yeah. kind of system. Yeah, for sure. And those sounds that you are making, you know, you talked about specific sounds where maybe there's a car going across the, the screen or something that is on screen, not ambience. Are you going out and recording those by just walking out onto the street and you line up a car and have it drive past or like or do you have libraries that you're pulling from or how are you actually going out and capturing this stuff it's a bit of both we have a library that's grown over the years everything we work on there's some original recordings that gets put in the library and then cataloged so that it's useful for later but then there's Mm -hmm. sometimes we just 
do some more recording because it, it's something we don't have or it's not what we have is not quite right. It's always good to have more car passes because you get tired of the car passes you've got. You've got more birds, more, <laughs> more, pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel you're walking around with a Zoom recorder every time you're out and about, and you're like, "Hey, there's a unique sound." Do you feel like you're constantly aware of your surroundings and you're and you're actually doing this in your off time, or like? Cause I'm just thinking, like Jane, you're away right now. You're not in Toronto. I just c- couldn't help but think that you'd you'd be like, "Hey, I'm going out to a cottage this weekend," and I'm going to bring my Zoom recorder in case there's some unique sound that I want to capture. Is that a thing? It's definitely a thing. Uh, but both of us record kind of wherever wherever we are. And yeah, I have a microphone and a recorder where I am, just in case. <laughs> I'm in the country right now, so it's partly for the nature because it's a certain time of year and you can hear certain birds or you can hear certain sounds of the wind, like the leaves are out now. But, you know, I've recorded when there's no leaves in the trees because it's a different sound. And depending on what the project is you're working, you might want wind in leaves or you might want wind in branches or you might want creaking branches. So capturing those sounds when they happen, like for sure, we both pay attention to what the sounds are around and like, oh, look, there's a cool sound. Like like Brennan sent me a picture. He was away and there was a little bird like he took a picture of it it was right beside his microphone and asked me if I knew what it was it was a bird in Mexico and and I said like I have no idea what kind of bird it is but (laughs) like like there's a means for identifying it because he's got the recording and he's got a photograph of it that's great when I first started interning with Jane she never like nudged me and explicitly said like you need to be recording all the time or you need to be recording whenever you're on your days off but it became very apparent that if I wanted to stay in her company and with the, you know, the close group of sound editors that she she was surrounded by, that yeah, everybody everybody's doing it. You have to have something with you in case you hear a great sound. And it's great to go out and record something that's specific. Like we oftentimes do do that if there's something we know that we need to get. But I feel like most of the time, the best sounds you get are just because you're in the right place at the right random time. You record something and you don't know when you're going to be able to use it. And then it could be years. It could be months or weeks, but a lot of the time for me anyways, it is years. And then you're like, oh yeah, Hmm. we have that sound. Or I've heard something that Jane has recorded or or likewise, and you go, okay, now's the time to use it. You know, and we trade things back and forth like that. That's so interesting because if you were like, hey, I'm going to get out of school and start my own sound facility, you know, good luck catching up with some of the people like yourselves that have these libraries that have been built up. Obviously, your talent and the work you're doing matters a great, great deal. But it's it's interesting hearing that, you know, obviously, the more you have these libraries built up, obviously, that must make you faster turning this kind of stuff around, right? Definitely, yeah. I don't know if it's if, if it if it specifically makes you faster. It certainly makes the job really interesting. Like it makes it makes it a little bit personal, and you know that it's. I mean, we joke about this. There's a certain dog bark that gets. It's from a library that gets put in practically every every show that's ever made, <laughs> and it's kind of you kind of think like surely those sound editors who are like top 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 sound editors they know that's a library dog they didn't probably want to put it in but maybe the uh, picture editor liked it and they put it in and the director really loves it and 
like, oh, shoot, now we have a... Ah, temp love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think of some projects like Chernobyl, which had really amazing sound. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, you know, no one's got the sounds of a nuclear plant melting down, but they made those sounds and they probably made them from recordings they had of other situations or like other environments. But that, that had an absolutely fantastic creative, a, a lot of made sound effects, which were just spectacular and creative and like nothing that I'd ever heard before. So in some of these situations, I'm just trying to picture how some of these strange background noises that you hear could be made. But, you know, when I think about, you know, DJs, electronic DJs that are making music, sometimes they're just hitting certain certain objects and then they're going in to Pro Tools or whatever their application is and they're adding a whole bunch of effects and tweaking the sound and doing all these things that the sound ends up becoming something completely different. Is that how some of this, some of these sounds are made? Like as an example, uh, one example of this I think that would be good is there's moments in The Handmaid's Tale specifically where intense scenes have the sound get really muffled and almost fade into the background while other sound effects of, you know, the main actress breathing or other things that are happening are brought really forward and then eventually all of a sudden you get snapped back in through the use of some type of sound and sometimes those sounds seem like they're not necessarily an object that I can see in the screen but it's 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 a unique sound and I'm wondering if is that how those are sometimes created it, it's com- it's completely contrived. You know, like what Brennan spoke of in the beginning of the A side and the B side of the mixing console. All of the sounds that we add are on their own tracks and all of the pieces of dialogue and all the various mm-hmm. stems of the music and all the foley that they're all, all on their own tracks so they can be brought forward or they can have reverbs added to them or other processing. They can be muted. So it's a complete artificial manipulation of what what are we going to hear what are we not going to hear and it's it's magical to watch mixers work like good mixers anyway yeah because that that specific effect would have happened when you got into the final mix that's not you know that 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 muffling of the sound and and all of that that i was talking about that would happen on the mixing stage so, uh, sometimes but because we often are given the scene first like we we work with it for a longer period of time than the mixers we have an idea in our heads of what we think it should sound like brennan will often have a you know a cool way of wanting to hear it and he'll do a a kind of an approximation of what it should be. So then the mixer will hear it and say, okay, I get the intention for that. And that mixer might, because they've got other ingredients at their disposal, and also they're working with, you know, in concert with the music and with the dialogue, they then can do further things that make the, the moment what Brennan or I have conceived originally. It's a constant maneuvering by a number of different people for an intention that we might have dreamed up originally or it may have, the intention may have come from the director as well um, maybe brennan you have some examples of because you've done a, a lot of the design for many of these scenes where you do something and then and you find the composer does something but they work together or or they decide they don't want the composer's work they want your work 
So in the final scene of episode four, I believe, the handmaids are all grouped together in a van and they arrive, they're being taken back to Gilead and they, and they arrive at a crossing, a railroad crossing, and the railroad crossing arms come down. Oh yeah, they were just captured and they were yeah. about to be taken back. That's right. That's right, by Aunt Lydia. And for this scene, they wanted us to basically build an amount of tension leading up to their escape. And they were using a Radiohead song, which is Fade Out, Street Spirit. And it's a famous song. And that's going to be the most prominent thing in the soundtrack because it has to be. It's, it's a beautiful song and it fits the scene and it's been chosen for a reason. But they want a kind of extra layer within the soundtrack. So they've asked us to do something for this moment, but we know in the back of our heads that anything we put in the mix has to fit with the music as well. So this is kind of a scenario where you want to take something that's in the environment. So for us, it was this, the, the railroad crossing bells and try to fit that with the music. So the first thing that we did is we timed all of the individual dings to match the guitar lick the rhythm that came with the song because that's what's driving the pulse of the that particular track and we kind of had that go through the entire scene but once we meticulously edited everything all the specific bell rings to be in time with all the specific guitar notes it quickly just turned into another musical aspect a part of the song and it sounded it sounded like a cowbell which which seems at first like if you're in audio school or film school you think oh that's great that's like exactly what you're supposed to do. You know, you, you pitch the railroad crossing bell to be in key with the song, which is what we did. And then you time it to be in sync with the song and then it's all great. But then the kind of second more advanced layer that you realize is, oh, now this just sounds like a cowbell. Now this just starts, like it starts off sounding like a railroad crossing, but it quickly just melds entirely into the song and there's no more sound effects. It's just part of the music. Mm. So then I went back and, made sure that it was out of tune. So now it's kind of just more a railroad crossing bell. And then that arrives at the mix and then the mixers kind of have the same inclination. They say, you know, what you guys did is great, but it's, it's, too, it's still too much like the song. So you're gonna have to find moments where you actually bring it out of sync and bring it back into sync. But you don't wanna bring it out of sync too much that it starts to sound like a mistake because people are gonna realize that once they're tuned in that it's in sync and that there's that aha moment by the audience. How do you then kind of make it fall out of rhythm and kind of come back in rhythm? And that, that was kind of the game we had to play throughout that scene. So it's this whole kind of strange symbiotic relationship where you're pushing and pulling and it's okay to be in pitch and to be in rhythm and to be working together. But for a show like Handmaid's Tale, especially with Bruce Miller, he wants things to be rough around the edges and he wants things to be a little dirty from time to time. And he wants things to be kind of off-putting and you need to be able to play that game. So that's the kind of really interesting challenges that were given on the show. That's really interesting. I, I can't wait to go back and watch that scene now. And, you know, I'm just I'm picturing this in my head and I'm wondering, did the picture editor know that this was going to be a thing? Because if in the edit you saw the, the cross that's in front of the tracks flashing red, it could have made this hard, right? If Pitcher was working against you in this scenario, did they know that this was the intention? It was stated that they wanted something to be kind of in, not necessarily in key, but they knew they wanted something to work with the music, but they, they weren't sure what. 
the obvious choices were, you know, something train related, but I don't think it was necessarily the train crossing. We're really lucky hmm. that there was that visual and we're really lucky that the opening of that song was in the boundaries of what a railroad crossing dinging could be synced to because there's a lot of sounds that if they're not like the Radiohead song was 115 BPM or something around there. If your sound is too far out of tempo, then it's just not going to work because if you time stretch something too far, you begin to hear the artifacts of it and it sounds digital and, and kind of gross and it's not natural. So we were really lucky that there was that specific on-screen production value of a railroad crossing happening and, and all that. Interesting. And I guess in some of these scenes, you know, if I were starting out and in this in this world of, of creating sound effects, you know, I'd be tempted to just be adding in every little sound that you think could be in that environment in reality. But I guess that's not what you would have been doing on this. And you're trying to really focus people's attention on specific things. Right. And I guess I'm curious in some of these scenarios, like as an example, right after the train struck those women and she was on the other side. There wasn't a lot of background sounds because it, it seemed like you really wanted to focus on her and her emotion and the feeling of that moment. And all of a sudden there, you didn't hear a million different background sounds. I assume that was obviously a specific choice that was made, right? Yeah. In fact, I think that was the direction we were told right from the beginning like of that scene. Like, no, we don't want to hear anything beyond that. And one of the things we do as sound effects editors or working in the sound effects world is you... You think about what you might hear in this world and then you think about what you want to hear in this world and you can cut a, a lot of things out because they're just they're not interesting or they're not contributing to the story or they might be fun to do but they're not really relevant so in that case you want to be with the main character and what she's just seen and what she's experienced and the horror of it in her head as opposed to what she's actually hearing or what she could be hearing yeah for sure and so once your work hits the mix stage, are you involved or do things ever get kicked back for you to redo certain things at that point? I'm just kind of curious. Once you finish your work, you've had approvals, things get turned over to the mix stage. Is your work done? No. <laughs> or yeah, is there more back and no, forth? No, there, there's, <laughs> there's back and forth. When there wasn't a pandemic on, we would spend time in the mix so that we would sit there for you know the two or three days that they're mixing and watch scenes and then make suggestions and then realize oh this is now we've got this element I mean sometimes we've never heard the music and quite quite often we've never heard the score so we would then like redo something hmm. now that we know that there's score there and often there's a change of heart or the producers hear something and they give them a new idea. So they say, hey, that sound is really great. So could we have something re related to that? We, we did a, or we're actually still doing a TV series called The North Water. And it, it's got a lot of sound in it. Brennan and I are doing this together. And uh, the mm -hmm. director got so excited when he heard all the, it said in a whaling ship, when he heard all these creeks and ice scrapes, that he's like, okay, now we want to hear more creaks and more ice scrapes. And we thought we had a lot, but we had to do more. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like once whoever's the creative director, whoever's listening, once they hear what something we've created sounds like, they give themselves the freedom to think what else they might want to do. And so sometimes we might want to 
add more. Like it might be our idea to add more. It might be the director or the producer's idea to add more. And sometimes things just don't work very well. They don't work. I see. Like in theory, they work really well, but in practice, they're not that great. So they, you know, we have to do something different. You know, it's it's a constant evolution, especially since we're working without score and without the dialogue. If the dialogue's nice and clean, it's way, way, way better for us. But if it's got a lot of environmental noise on it, it gives us less palette to work with. Makes sense. I see. And considering COVID and the fact that we're all in lockdown mode here in Toronto, and that's where your facility is, I'm curious because, you know, when you look at what's changed over the past year with DPs and different people signing off on color, you can send someone a monitor. You could send someone an iPad Pro and they could have a reasonable look at color and give assessments and there's remote sessions. So for Handmaid's Tale, were there any kind of remote sessions and how could you trust that someone's not listening on a shitty laptop? Or how, you know what I mean? Like when, you, when, when you're trying to have these review and approval sessions, how does that work or how did that work on Handmaid's? A big kind of very smart move that the facility did was they picked, they reviewed and researched a very specific pair of headphones that they trusted that I began to use and that Jane used um, when we worked remotely. Quite frankly, they were the best headphones I'd ever listened to and we felt very confident in them. And they purchased and sent a pair of those to the producers and showrunners that were going to be part of the playbacks remotely. And so we all knew to some degree we were listening on the same kind of vetted, trusted pair of headphones. Hmm. From there, there's always going to be a little bit of difficulty because as soon as sound isn't being pushed through air, things sound too intimate, they sound too close. And so there's always a learning curve there. Even just, I remember Sheila Hawken kind of saying, if I just pull the, the headphones apart from my ears, just a few centimeters, it makes a world of difference. And I'd never noticed that. And I actually start doing that now hmm. as well. So it's been this really interesting thing where because it's so new, to most of us, you, you get little tips like that that just come up during a remote playback. And that's like literally a technique that I use now where I'll think, I don't know, this sounds too up close, this sounds too sharp, and I'll just do the Sheila Hawk and pull the, pull the headphones a couple centimeters from my head and, it, and I'm like, ah, I get a better idea of, of what it's gonna sound like. Huh, yeah. there's, there's an idea for anyone listening, invent some headphones that just uh, sit half an inch off your head. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, ultimately, we defer to the mix theater because they have the prime kind of immaculate listening scenario. Mm-hmm. They have the best speakers. They have this beautiful room that's been treated and that's been that's been calibrated to hear in a perfect environment. And then they also have sets of speakers that emulate your crappy pair of laptop speakers that you're talking about, you know? So mm. they can bounce between what that theater environment sound is going to be like and what it's going to be like at home for somebody listening on a television set. And they can kind of gauge where the middle ground between those those two things are. It's always this give and take game of that where they're, they're trying to find that middle ground and they're also trying to appease the notes that they're receiving and they're also trying to decode what they're being told by someone who's listening on that set of headphones, what that means for them in the theater and what that means for anybody else who's going to be listening on, be it headphones, be it a television system or a computer or anything else. It's funny how many similarities there are with the picture side of things. I mean, 
People have spent a lot of money on making up the picture side of the room, painting it a specific shade of gray, and they're, we're on a BVMX 300, and it's a very expensive monitor. We know it's it's trusted and calibrated, and then you get someone looking at another display, and yeah, very, all very similar challenges. That's interesting, and you know, ideally, just like on the soundstage, like you're saying, you could get in there and be there, but even, I guess this show's been done for a little while, but are you now starting to have some clients back in the office yet? We haven't really had any clients back in, partly because Ontario is still in lockdown. And we actually have had clients say they really like this way of listening to mixes and they might just stick with it into the future. Hmm. I think the communal aspect of playing back a mix is kind of a wonderful experience so I'm sure we'll return to that but this has been a kind of a rewarding experience and it is a great way of all listening to something in a similar fashion. Yeah interesting I mean even when you look at remote editorial and a lot of the new ways of working across our entire industry I feel like even when this is done we're all vaccinated the world can hopefully go back to normal soon it will be different. And it sounds like with what you're saying, it'll be picking and choosing times to go in and have those communal sessions, but not every session needs to be like that, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Gotcha. Well, um, before we wrap out, I'm curious if there are any other specific scene or scenario from the show that you think would be worth bringing up. Um, just a general sound that went back to, we were kind of, touched on it but when Reed in those initial episodes were she, she came up with this sound that she really liked and it was this kind of windy this surreal wind and she wanted something like that and she had a temp sound for it but we all kind of really didn't know like where did this wind come from and how do we recreate that because it sounds like wind but it doesn't sound like wind and I realized while playing with a synthesizer that it was basically like a lot of analog synths will have a noise generator. So they'll have oscillators that make tonal sounds. And then they'll have a noise generator, which literally just makes white noise or pink noise, much like what would be on a, a baby you know, noise maker to help you fall asleep. Yeah. And so I gathered as many analog synthesizers as I could from different friends because I'm also in Toronto, I have kind of a small community of friends where we all make music together. And I started playing with all of these noise generators and filtering the sound, filtering the noise through the analog filters of these synthesizers and sweeping that kind of filter on the noise generator creates a very wind-like effect. Hmm. And so I spent like, I think it was like almost like three or four days just doing this with just different synthesizers. And it eventually, I got super close to the sound that Reed had originally wanted. And that for me has very much become the signature sound design, surreal sound in the show that we're still using into season four. So that was like an interesting thing for me. It was this kind of, it's really hard sometimes to know how to replicate something, especially when it's, there's temp love. Mm -hmm. and kind of going back to what Jane originally said about about recording sound like it might not be more efficient and faster but you get this whole other connection with it and it's really personal and you feel a real love for the sound and it's it's really awesome when it continues through through more than just an episode and, and through the seasons so for me that's like a a very special example yeah that's really amazing well your work 
definitely shows in this. Honestly, it's probably, I'm not just (laughs) pumping your tires. I honestly think this had the best sound out of any, from any show I've ever, I've ever heard. I was about to say seen, but (laughs) the best sound I've ever heard on a show. Well, it's the sound that helps you to see it. (laughs) Yes, there you go. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. Your knowledge, feedback, willingness to share is greatly appreciated. And for anyone else that hasn't seen this show, definitely check it out. It's really heavy. Uh, Like, my wife literally cried every single episode, and uh, I may have shed a couple tears, (laughs) but it's amazing. It is an amazing show. Heavy, but amazing. So thank you very much for joining us, both of you. Thank you for having us, Jesse. Yeah, thank you so much, Jesse. No problem. All right. And thank you, everyone else, for tuning in. Your support is very much appreciated. And stay tuned for the reveal of who our next guest will be on social media. And until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.